This episode of the Blowing Smoke with Twisted Rico podcast is brought to you by Spectacle Eyewear. Now, if you've been watching any episodes of this podcast on our YouTube channel, you might have noticed I've been wearing some pretty cool specs lately. Well, you know where I get them? Spectacle Eyewear, 505 Tremont Street, Boston, Massachusetts. Their phone number is 617-542-9600. Head down to Spectacle. Go visit our friend Paul. You'll get yourself some cool specs. Welcome to Blowing Smoke with Twisted Rico. I'm your host, Steve Ricardo. We're finishing 2023 with a bang. Did you expect anything less? Our guest today is Peter Prescott, who was the drummer in one of America's most influential bands and one of our favorites as well, Mission of Burma. We started the show off with the song, That's How I Escaped My Certain Fate, 
from the 1982 Versus album produced by our good friend Rick Hart from Ace of Hearts Records. Peter Prescott has had a storied career, not only with Burma, but also Volcano Sons, the peer group, Customized, and his current band, Mini Beast. We cover all of that and more in our wonderful conversation. Okay, check this out, and we will be right back. Being the big vinyl lover that I am, I'm proud to tell you about Joe's albums in their two locations. The original shop at 317 Main Street in downtown Worcester, Massachusetts, and their second location out in Western Mass at 5 Market Street, Northampton. Both of these shops are loaded with both new and used vinyl. It's hard to walk in either shop and walk out empty-handed due to their amazing collection of records and other cool goodies like t-shirts, mugs, posters, etc. If you can't find what you're looking for in the retail stores, check out their website, joesalbums.com. Thank you, Joe, for being so cool. It was around September 1981 that I first discovered Mission of Burma. I had just joined the radio station at WDJM in Framingham, Mass., which is located about 20 minutes outside of Boston. The Signals, Calls, and Marches EP had just been released a month or so earlier. Can you imagine putting on a record in 1981 and hearing that's when I reached for my revolver for the first time? It was absolutely fucking mind-blowing. It was also around that time that I discovered that Mission of Burma had released a seven-inch single entitled Academy Fight Song in June of 1980, and it's no exaggeration when I say my rock and roll ears were changed forever. That's when I became a lifelong Mission of Burma fan, and I wasn't the only one. There is a long list of bands that cite them as an inspiration. They were clearly different. Unfortunately, after a little more than three years on the scene and touring, guitarist Roger Miller developed tinnitus, and that, along with other reasons which we hear about in our, in our interview with Peter, Mission of Burma was calling it quits. On March 12, 1983, I found myself at the Bradford Hotel for the matinee show, the first of two shows for what was to be Burma's Farewell. One of my other favorite bands at the time, the Dangerous Birds opened and they were followed by hardcore legends, Negative FX, who were also playing their last show. It was going to be a beautiful mix of art, rock, and hardcore. It turned out to be one of the most historic events in music history. Mission of Burma was so good. It pained me to think I would never see them again. That, of course, all changed in, a, in around 2002 when the band reunited. And of course, I did see them again, and they were great as ever. The Bradford Show and an amazing show at the Somerville Theater with the neighborhoods opening was as explosive as ever. And now I knew, seeing Mission of Burma live, hearing them on a record, my rock and roll mind would never ever be the same again. Attention guitar players, I know you're out there. I have some exciting news for you. You ready? Put down that six string and listen. Stomp Underfoot 
are handmade guitar pedals by fuzz-obsessed Matt Pascarella. Matt makes every pedal using quality new old stock, absolute and rare through whole components. I know you know what that means if you're a, you're a guitar player, right? Every pedal is also entirely hand-wired, tested, and ready to go. If you want high-quality handmade pedals, check out Stomp Underfoot at stompunderfoot.com. Peter Prescott was not only in one of the most important bands ever, Mission of Burma, but he also had some shining moments in Volcano Suns, who were one of the top indie rock bands of the late 80s. His band Customize, which was only around for two albums, also made their mark, as did the peer group and the tribal sounds of Mini Beast, which are still alive today. It was a great honor to talk with Peter Prescott, and I'm happy to share our conversation with you now. Please enjoy. Welcome to those of you watching on YouTube. This is Blowing Smoke with Twisted Rico. I'm your host, Steve Ricardo. If you want to hear this entire show with intros, outros, and music, please go to Apple, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, or wherever else you listen to your podcast. Please welcome to the show, Peter Prescott. How you doing? Great, Peter. Um, did you, were you actually, you were actually born in Nantucket? I was. <laughs> That's, uh, uh, yeah, I don't even know exactly how that happened. I think my dad might have been stationed there when he was in the Coast Guard. And then shortly after that, we moved to um, Wareham, Massachusetts. So I, I, it was sort of a weird coincidence that I happened to be born there. But yeah, I was. Wareham, that's like on the Cape? It is. Uh, so they like to call themselves the the gateway to the cave. Yeah. Uh, did you like, do you remember when you were young, when you started listening to music and what, what caught your ear or was there music playing in your family's house or, you know, my, my parents were not that overtly musical in any way. Um, I, you know, I hate to be boring, but I think it was like the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. You know, <laughs> I think, I think that's really like, people of my era you know that tended to be the introduction and then you saw like shindig or whatever with paul revere and the raiders and stuff like that a couple of years later so yeah it, oddly enough like obviously the radio was influential but the tv when i actually could see a group standing there playing that was the revelation i i think you know i like singers and I like sort of single rock star types, but I've always been smitten by the idea of a group of, you know, a collection right. of people playing together. And when they play <clears throat> together, they make something bigger than they could ever, you know, be alone. So, yeah, I, I think it, it was the Beatles. Did, did you start playing the drums at an early age? I mean, did Ringo have anything to do with that at all? Or You know, Ringo didn't per se... I think um, I I was forced, like a lot of people were, to take piano lessons. So when you're forced to do anything, you don't <laughs> you tend to see it as a you know a debit, like a bad thing. So 
I tended not to learn music through piano. I tried the guitar. I didn't really have the affinity for that at the time, but like banging on stuff that that made perfect sense to me. So yeah, I, that was the that was the instrument that I first really dedicated myself to. How how old were you when you were playing the drums? Probably in any steady way, probably like 12, 13, somewhere in there. Were you listening to a lot of music besides the, you know, seeing the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show? Were you buying records? I know you're a big record collector. That's I, pretty I, well documented. Yeah, you can probably see them back there. <laughs> um, I I started buying 45s. I think um, what what I noticed whenever I heard something that didn't, was at the bottom of the top 40, you know, whether it was like Mountain, uh, Mississippi Queen, that yeah, song. I remember I morning. bought that 45. I I bought like uh, T-Rex, Rider White Swan. If anything was sort of like a little too weird or a little too abrasive to be in the top 10, I probably wanted that 45. Um, so that's what I started doing first is buying buying 45s and listen to top 40 radio um and you know around around the time that fm you know sort of replaced top 40 for you know stoners and weirdos i gravitated to an fm um which had like looser formats it was more unusual you might hear longer songs so yeah that's you know, as as the seventies went on, you know, I I was I was tilting toward FM radio, I suppose. You know, I grew up in Worcester County, so I grew up with WAAF. Was was BCN? Yep. Could you hear BCN where you were? Or did you listen to AAF? No, I BCN. It was it was BCN, and you know, whatever. You know, at that time, oldies radio would play the blues, magoos, and and. uh uh, Hendrix and and the Doors, so you know you know Top Forty Radio wasn't even that bad in the late sixties. It was actually pretty pumping. So yeah, uh, when did you start? Did you did you start a band early on? Did you start playing in a band early on, or was it still at the Cape, or did you, had you moved away from there by that point? When I was on the on the Cape, there was three or four musicians that. I, I stayed together um, with, we didn't do anything original. It was all like, you know, Sabbath, Led Zeppelin, st stuff in, in that area. And I think the first time I played original music, I saw an ad in the Boston Phoenix for um, a, a, a band. I can't remember how they described themselves, but it was like sci-fi rock or something like that. And, you know, I just took a flyer. I said, you know, I don't care. I got to get out of this place. So I went and tried out for the, a group called the Malls. And the Malls did pretty weird shit. It was like just the be beginning of the punk rock era in Boston. And these guys were on the outer edge of that but that's sort of what i was looking for so they they uh 
I'm trying to think when that was. It was probably 77. 76 to 79, I think, was when the band, when the, believe it or not, I know this. The malls were around during that time. Yeah. That sounds right. Um, Cause I was, I was in that band when the, the Pistols record came out. And I remember we were all kind of amazed by that. Um, so yeah, that was the first time I played original music. And I, I, I just, I don't think I ever turned, I don't think I ever went backward after that. It was, you know. I know that there was a single, uh, White Stains, I think was the name of it. I, I, from what I understand, that's pretty worth a few bucks these days. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, the, I think they ended up grouping some of the material together on an Italian uh, album, too. Uh, and that single, I think, was was on it with, with some other demo-type stuff. But, um, yeah, that was another thing. It was a thrill to put out a, a 45, you know? It was like wow, this is, this is sort of what real bands do, you know? Tristan Lozar was in that band also? Correct. Yep, he was the bass player. So was there anything between the Malls and Mission of Burma? Because I couldn't figure out if there was or not. There was not. Um, the Malls played with the band that Clint and Roger were in, which was called Moving Parts. Yeah. And... A sort of a similar, like almost punk rock filtered through prog rock or something, you know. It was it was um similar to the malls that way. And um I like the moving parts, but I love those guys. I just I said like when I heard that they broke up around the time I was booted from the malls, I I was bummed out about that, but then I said, wait a minute. I got to find those guys. And I somehow heard that Clint was working at a bar in Cambridge called Jack's. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you remember that. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, it was on Mass Ave. It burnt. Uh, did that play? Was it that place that burnt down or Jumping Jack Flash? One of those two burnt down. I think Jumping Jack Flash burnt yeah. down. Okay. I think. Um, but um, yeah, I found him in there. I said, like, what are you guys doing? Uh, are you, are you playing? And, he said, yeah, we're trying to get something going that's more more sort of guitar heavy and and like a, a more of a trio thing. And I said, like, I want to try out then. And uh, <laughs> they tried me out three times. I think I think it, it took three times before they said, OK, <laughs> he's the guy. But I didn't care. Again, I I sort of knew that. I sort of knew I wanted to play with those two guys. Did and you guys start playing gigs right away? Pretty fast. Yeah. Um, they, they had uh, material. They were, uh, I, some of which they had played in moving parts, but then Clint started writing and Clint, as you know, had a, a bit more of a pop leaning. So it yeah. was a nice, it was a nice balance between like uh you know Roger's mad scientist songs and and Clint's that were a, a bit more on the anthem side and right away I was like this is a nice balance between these two so yeah it was pretty fast what do you remember about those early shows um I remember that people didn't really understand us <laughs> Uh, which wouldn't be the first time I was in a band that people didn't understand. But I think 
we we also uh we're sort of less concentrated more noisy and i i think you know to be fair i don't think we had quite gelled yet but i think within a few months i i i think it was starting to i think we were playing it all better and i think people started you know relating to it um did those guys already know Rick Hart or did you guys all meet Rick together? I think we met him. Uh, I think we met him together. Um, and, you know, I was. He had put out the Inflictors single. And I don't think he had put out the Neighborhoods single yet. Um, but I was sort of surprised that. He. It was very like brian epstein like he saw something in us that i don't think we even saw you know uh that he you know rick is like hugely into the british invasion era and i think he he finds that he found that you know a single by the yardbirds or you know the kinks was was such a an earth-shattering thing that he he kind of saw that something like that could be pulled out of whatever noise we were making. Well, I mean, Academy Fight Song was one of the first songs you recorded, right? Yeah, that and Max Ernst. I mean, that's a pretty good start. I mean... No, I, I was, you know, I was glad that he saw that he saw that because I think... I'm not sure where we would have gone if we never ran into him, but... Let's put it this way. I'm glad we did because because I think he he solidified what was good. And that's what a great producer or engineer does. You know, they they pull the best out of you. And I think he was he was good at that. It seemed like a lot happened in a short period of time, because before you know it, I was actually at the Bradford Hotel show. That was the first time I saw the band. I saw you guys again years later, but yeah. the first time, because I, I was pretty young then. Um, did you, I mean, was this, this is mostly because Roger had hearing issues, right? That you guys didn't. That was, that was the main reason, um, you know, Clint Clint had some substance abuse stuff. He he went into rehab and dealt with that, and I think he's dealt with it in an amazing way ever since. I mean, that was so long ago. Um, but but you know, it it wasn't it. Rogers' thing was the main reason, but I I think we kind of felt like, all right, we we did a good thing here. Let's not beat it into the ground, which we proceeded to do 20 years later there was a story i had heard and i can't remember who told me this but is it true that you guys went to la to play a gig and you checked out the room and you didn't like it and said we're not playing here and you left is that a true story i think it was madam wong's was the name of the club uh you know i remember that i remember that place but I'm not sure if we played it or not. Yeah, I can't. You know? I heard it was, I knew I just came out of left field with that. I just, whenever anybody that. tells me, uh, you know, is this story true? <laughs> it probably is. <laughs> Whether I remember it or not. 
as far as the Bradford goes, uh, do you, what is your, I was at the mat matinee show, by the way, which is yeah. absolutely insane. Uh, yeah. what, what is your recollection of that day? I mean, what did you think of all the chaos that was going on? You know, I, I loved it. And, and in the year or two before, um, I think it's fair to say that we had been pretty affected by hardcore and, and it was sort of, I mean, it was sort of nice to hear something eclipse us that was harder and faster and meaner and louder. Um, and I think we were affected by the speed. I know that we started playing all our material like twice as fast. I'm not, a, I, and I think it, you know, it was the influence of that. And I, I think, um, you know, that's why we had negative effects on that <laughs> bill. And, you, you know, to us, it was just, it was a good, hang on just a sec, Steve. Hey, Lisa, what? how can I get these out of here? I'm going to pause. Okay, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, so the... um. You were talking about I, negative I, FX plans. Well, there were a lot of mixed emotions, I think. You know, we were we were um happy to play shows that had such crazy chaos and energy, but we knew that was it. You know, that was that was gonna be it. So you know, there was some sadness mixed into the fact that like the gigs themselves were really crazy and fun. So yeah, it was some mixed emotions. Did you guys generally have a good relationship with the hardcore scene? Because the Boston hardcore scene around that time was like booming. Thriving. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I think I, that was mixed too, because I know that some of those kids saw us as way too weird and arty. And I think some of them saw us as the old the old wave um which i i couldn't i couldn't blame them for that i mean in a way we were you know we had we were the thing that came before um on the other hand i think some of them had respect for us because we were you know pretty guitar driven pretty frenetic um so yeah i i i think uh at the time at least at least a few of those guys that were in bands, I think that they kind of saw us as the as as an old thing at that point. Um, again, well, which I kind of understand when there's a new movement, you know, you kind of want to kick the old one to the curb. Yeah. So um, we're going to talk about the peer group in a, in a few minutes, but um, I want you to help me settle this discussion. I know there was a show in May. I'm going to do this by bands rather than by chronological order yeah, yeah. so much. Yeah. Um, I know there was a discussion about whether or not in May 2000, when Roger and Clint joined the peer group on stage, that it was planned and that was the beginning of an unofficial reformation of the band. Is that true or not? I mean, what what's the story behind that? No, it it, it was. Uh, yeah, I think that was coincidental like that. You know, we always kept in touch. Um, we never we never had a bad breakup or anything. Um, so yeah, I, I, th I think we were opening the peer group open for wire. I think that's what it was. Yeah. And, wire. And yeah. yeah, those, those guys, uh, 
I'm not sure both of them did, but I know Roger did play trumpet or something. Um, yeah, I, I think it may have cracked the door open a little bit, um, but, but there was no intention from, from that to start playing. Um, and frankly, we didn't think anybody gave a shit anyway. I, I remember like, it's funny how sounds go in and out of style, like, toward the end of the 90s I remember like post-punk bands in general were sort of at an all-time low in terms of people caring about that sound and suddenly in the 2000s there was this whole wave of young bands that were absolutely aping that sound and that was just a coincidence that suddenly that sound came back into vogue um again that may have cracked the door further open um because we said well people actually sort of liked like the you know gang of four killing joke you know that kind of stuff it's like they they sort of liked this again and so that was another thing that made it seem a little less ridiculous to actually uh play again and when we did start playing again there was no intention to continue it was it was just like we'll play a few shows and we'll be happy and people can get nostalgic and then we'll crawl back into the the age cave and it, that it didn't happen that way which is pretty odd when i think back on it yeah you ended up releasing four albums i i saw a, another show it was one of the best shows i ever saw you guys played with the neighborhoods at the somerville theater what a phenomenal oh, night yeah, yeah. it was. Yeah, that uh, was fun. That was pretty close to around the time of uh, Unsound, which ended yeah. up being the fourth. And is is there an official decision that the 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 door has been closed on Mission of Burma? Because I I heard that somewhere. Or do you think there'll ever be another Mission of Burma show? I don't. I don't think so. I mean, one thing we're aware of here. And if you notice, like lots of reunion bands, they ha they have a young rhythm section, <laughs> and that's so. I mean, the the Buzzcocks played um, at the Paradise, and I think they did the first two records in order, and it was incredible. But they had a rhythm section that was like half the age of Shelley and and Steve, you know that made it work almost like the original band did um with with us i i really don't play drums um and i haven't for maybe six or seven years wow so my my take on it is that we're all pretty comfortable as it is yeah, it's uh, a really good we, story. We we beat that horse hard. So <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you guys put out four great records, man. Thank uh, you. you know, well, the early ones too, obviously. Yeah. I love all the early stuff. Um, I here's another person I'm bringing into the story early because I'm wondering if you're the one that Bob Weston. Um, he joined the band on those four albums, but he was in Volcano Sons. Yep. Did you bring him into the mix, basically, or did um, you guys all know him? No, we all we all knew him, and 
around the same time that we restarted, he had recorded uh, Clint's band Consonant, and um, who put out two really beautiful records. And um, so he was, you know, he had moved out to Chicago by that time, and he and he, I think um, he had started playing with uh, Steve, and they they were doing shellac. Shellac, yeah. Um, so yeah, the, I, I again when when I'm there's certain people that will always float float around in my life, and I think Bob is one of them. And so it was a very natural thing. Martin Swope was not interested in any kind of a reunion, and Bob was fascinated by the idea of basically being Martin Swope, you know, for the new century. Um, so yeah, it was a very natural thing. And he was the the house. He was the front of the house guy for you, right? On all those yes. tours. So that yep. made sense. Um, briefly, Dreadful in the Den. <laughs> you guys put a, one record out, and then I guess uh, some material came out years later. Uh, was that just a planned one-off type thing that you were doing? It ended up on you know ended up on Homestead. I mean, which we're yep. leaning into the Volcano Suns. Well, you know, a bunch of his stuff with with Burma, with the Suns, and all the stuff he did he did since has all been reissued in the past couple of months. Oh, it has. Um, yeah, and they they um, remastered everything. They got live stuff. They got studio mm -hmm. outtakes. It's really extensive. Um, I think. Uh, the first thing Burma put out a single with Dreadful. Um, and then I think we played, Burma played a few shows backing him up. When Burma broke up, the sons were there and he asked us and and uh we we loved his stuff. So I, I think we might have played as his backup band, along with along with Kenny for moving targets. Um, yeah. And it might have been a year and a half, two years. Um, but yeah, that, that was just a, a, a really fun thing. Uh, it was a side thing, but it, it got kind of steady. Yeah, it was right simultaneously around the time that uh, Volcano Suns, because um, I know 85 was the year Bright Orange uh, Years came out. Mm -hmm. Um Gerard signed G Gerard. Was he the one that signed you guys or was it Sam? Yes. Yeah. Gerard. Yeah. Yep. You, you've, you ended up having a pretty long relationship with him in one way or the other over the years, man. I gotta, I gotta call the guy, my patron saint. I mean, I, he, he was really incredible in like always having an open ear to what I did, even when it wasn't very commercially viable. So uh, yeah, I, I owe that guy most of my most of my career <laughs> for you folks out there listening Gerard Cosloy started at Homestead and ended up at Matador Records and uh mm -hmm. Volcano Suns which we're going to talk about here like a big chunk of your career and the people that you worked with Lou Giordano uh, Steve Albini uh, Sean Slade. Now, okay, I don't want to jump all over the place, but I'm kind of here. The Fort Apache stuff that you did, was that the old original Fort Apache? 
It was, yeah. It was like a, in Roxbury. Mat- yeah, Roxbury. I was going to say Mattapan, but it was it was in Roxbury. Yeah, I used to uh, when we'd record there, I would ride my bike there and like ride home in the middle of the night. Um, <laughs> it but, must uh, have been fun. <laughs> yeah, uh, it was it was kind of crazy sometimes. But uh, yeah, all the people that the the sons worked with were pretty great i mean yeah lou lou especially like really really made those first two records uh work i thought yeah i had uh greg um from Piscadu on the show we talked about lou for a while because lou is their sound guy for a while everyone seems to love lou (laughs) yeah everybody does yeah in fact you know a couple of years ago he did a reunion record for the proletariat. I don't know if you've heard it, but it's amazing. Amazing. It just sounds like as, as good as any, any rock music can sound. So he's, he's still, uh, he's still cranking. I I forgot to mention earlier. I know the proletariat played the nighttime show at the Bradford hotel. I couldn't remember who the, the first show was dangerous birds open. Who opened the second show? I couldn't remember. It's Christmas. Okay. That makes sense. You guys think, really did a service to both sides of the aisle. On the, you had the arty bands and you had the hardcore. You guys were good about that. We 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 love both <clears throat> both ends of that equation. You know, I, I, like I, I think uh, we knew that both both things were going to be around for a while, and uh, you know we cared about both ends of that. So. Uh, yep. On Volcano Suns for a minute, I was listening to a bunch of that music this week, and White Elephant. My God, it's one of the best songs I think to come out in the in the eighties. I mean, what a Thank brilliant, you. brilliant job on that one. And then the Bumper Crop album. I thought, you know, Bob came in on that, and that's. I mean, all these records are really good. It's hard to like pick one out and say one's better than the other. I mean, Appreciate when you look it. at that period of your life, I mean, you feel like you accomplished everything you wanted to accomplish with that band. Yeah, actually, I I think um, the I was actually the first Volcano Sons was with Stephen Mishner and Gary Wallach. Yeah, um, who went on to Big Dipper. Um, uh john williams joined those guys left we got jeff and we made the first two records um they they took off and i hooked up with bob and chuck who was in sorry um so it just it just kept rolling along i will say um i love the first two records but my happiest moments in that band was with uh, David Plyler and and Bob. That was like the last three years, I think. I was playing with those guys, and we all got along great. When the last tour we did, I think we came to the end of it, and we were like, you know, shook hands and said, I guess that's it. And there was no no tears, no recriminations, no sadness. It was like one of, one of the one of the most pleasant breakups that i that i ever had in a band it was like I, I, so i ha, i will always have really warm feelings about that 
Yeah, and you know, you ended it with Albini producing the the last record. That was right around the time that he did Nirvana. Was, oh, right before Nirvana, actually. It was, this... it was probably a couple of years before, yeah. but he, he was he was starting to record bands really fast, you know, starting to do a lot of stuff there. So the fact that he he did run into Nirvana at that point, if you look at all the indie rock that he had practiced on up to that point, it made sense that that Nirvana said, yeah, get that guy. Yeah, I, I remember hearing somewhere that Albini put some show together and you guys play with Cheap Trick. Uh, we ended up playing a festival in England called All Tomorrow's Parties. We did maybe three or four of them. And the first one we did, um, Shellac were the curators of it. And so, you know, Wire was on that bill, lots of Chicago stuff. And Shellac has always loved Cheap Trick. Albini in particular, like, adores Cheap Trick. And so we ended up playing just before them. Wow. It was like, it was such an odd, it was such an odd thing, but like, I love cheap trick. Who, who doesn't love cheap trick, you know? So, um, yeah. So we actually did play just before them. Was it their audience or your audience? Uh, it was more, uh, oddly enough, I think it was more our audience. Um, Cause I think some of the kids that were there, you know, most of the bands were indie rock bands. So some of the kids were kind of like, who are these, you know, 70s rock guys, you know? <laughs> um, but I didn't care. I loved them. Uh, okay. Uh, customized. <laughs> uh, there, there, there may have been a short break before Customized. And did you take a little break there or... In between the Volcano Sons and Customized, yeah, there was probably a year or two. Yeah, you did three albums, two singles on uh, Matador. Um, I know uh, I had Kurt Davis on the show, and he played with you. I was wondering what I was going to ask you this question in general. Being the drummer that you are, it must have been hard for some of these other drummers to come in and play with you. I mean, do you have a specific thing that you were looking for? And did you tell um, them how you wanted them to do it? Like well, Kurt, you know, I, no, I, I don't tell drummers how to play because that's stupid. <laughs> I want I want any musician that I play with to do what they do. I don't want to like put constraints on yeah. them. I don't I don't want to tell them what to do or how to do it, whether it's drums or anything else. I I always give suggestions, but I I really like I try to stay away from that. The, the thing about Customize is like two of those, Kurt and Ed, I worked with at Mystery Train. And I think we were listening to a lot of the same stuff at the time. We loved hanging out. And um, I think Customize was sort of the most regular rock and roll band I, I ever played with. Um yeah, just for the novelty of it, I was sort of into like rock and roll, which, I, you know, you could argue that I never really played that, you know, with some variation on that. But yeah, I, I think we just wanted like simple, direct, 
um, without being obvious, but I think we we all were were looking to play in a band like that, and we were hanging out a lot, so it, it was just natural. And Matador was totally on board with that as well, right? Yeah, I I think um, you know because I was working at a record store, I was sort of getting into like rockabilly and surf and uh, all these sort of rock offshoots that I really didn't pay much attention to before. And I know that those guys like that kind of stuff too. So yeah, it was the most traditional rock and roll band I think I ever played with. And um, a really influential person in my life, Bob Moses was the bass player. Um, he's, he's died since and, and uh, I, I miss him incredibly but he was a great influence on customized too i think he was in the same spot everybody was just like let's just play rock music and not like overthink it so and in uh customized seemed to like evolve into the peer group was that the case of what happened um i sort of sort of but i was playing with with different people and i think uh you know, it wasn't the peer group wasn't as wasn't supposed to be as directly a rock and roll band. I think I was like seeping back into weirdness. Uh, and um, there was a that was another band that like went a bunch of people came and went. I mean, we were a four piece, a six six piece like um, that was a fun thing. The one thing I'd say about the peer group is that it was the one band I've ever had that wasn't really represented well by a record. I think, you know, we recorded stuff, but we never really put out an album. And by the time, by the time it got to the end of the peer group, it didn't sound anything like it did when it started. So yeah, that that's the only thing I'll say about that is like, it evolved and changed so much that we never really got a a sound. It's a really interesting band to me for a number of reasons. Um, there's more things about this band online than any band that you've been in. For a band that only had, I think, uh, one song actually released. I think you're right. Nick yeah. Blakely's blog spot is unbelievable. I don't know if you ever checked it out, but he has every gig, every set list, everything and he, and that's when i found out that you guys recorded all those demos with pete weiss and then i found the unreleased new alliance album that made me actually call nick z last night because i needed to know what's the deal with this because i found it on youtube and uh it's 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 wild man is there a reason why you guys never released it i Un lack of focus <laughs> like a lot of bands you know it, I and I think members came and went so fast that it it never really developed a, a concrete identity um I you know a lot of the stuff I do like um the one the one thing there is toward the end of the peer group we started playing songs that were longer and groovier and kind of had like a, a trancey quality about them. And 
that stuff I really liked. And that's kind of what I'm doing now. Was, was that the last, because Nick did mention to me, you guys recorded on that two inch machine down there. And uh, that was a famous machine. <laughs> was that the last time you recorded on tape? Because mini, no, because the oh, the yeah. Burma stuff we oh, did you... after that. And that oh was yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. sorry, yeah, yeah. Because I know that machine. I remember that machine at thirteen twelve uh, Boylston Street. That was a great room down there. It's too bad that building's gone. <laughs> yep. Well, you know, we also uh, recorded with uh, God. I think of the. I can't think of his name at the moment. We, he played in a band called Crack Torch. Oh and, yeah, was uh, Mark Schleicher and Nick Z? Yes, yes, yeah. I love Mark Mark Schleicher. Uh, he recorded the last music we did, and I don't think Nick was in that edition of it. But um, that stuff was kind of neat too. So I, I mean, there was a lot of different interesting moments in that band. I, I think, you know, again, I think why stuff didn't come out is like. We never had a real long period of of focus, steady, uh, you know, lineup. So, uh, yeah, I certainly, I don't think any band I was in was a waste of time in any way, but that was just one that didn't, it didn't come to fruition. You know, it you guys, didn't. You, you guys opened for a lot of cool bands. I was looking at the list. We actually opened for the damned. Amazing. You know? I mean, that's bizarre uh yeah wire shellac i mean and plus you yep. played gigs i was looking at your schedule it seemed like you didn't care if you played jocks or the linwood or the kirkland you guys did everything yeah it was it was a moment where i i, I think you know clubs in boston were always opening and closing and i think we, we were just you know uh a working band so whatever came up we would check it out Okay, so uh, then Burma happened after that again. And then now we got Mini Beast. Mini Beast still active now? Yes. Um, I went back and checked out all that. The thing that I got out of the, the Mini Beast stuff, because I watch video and listen, is I want to get copies of both the gold and silver vinyl. After hearing <laughs> both. How many do you guys press on those? I think we always keep it. I, the 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 bottom amount you can have done, I think, has been 300. So that's tended to be what we made of every record we put out. So um, Crowd Pleasure was the one song that I, I heard that really blew my mind. And I think I saw a video of it, too. Um, what was your goal when you started that band? Was it more like just, I'm just going to do this because the drums are real tribal sounding and it's just really just instrument. I mean, I, I hate to, I guess I have to use the word instrumental. I don't know what other word to use. How would you describe it? Well, <laughs> that's, that's a tough one. It is, I, I think, for example, when it comes to the instrumental thing, there are some songs that I say one word. There are some that I actually, you know, this sort of a verse and a chorus. There's some that have only samples and no words. I think 
you know, this is like your old guy band in <laughs> in the sense in the sense that everything you might have wanted to do before that you thought was not commercial enough or too weird or too this or too that we do whatever we want <laughs> and we and we play shows that look like they'll be fun it we try to strip it down um to the simplest equation now it started by me making two solo records under that name and i i did them in this room that's look, behind look don't look was a solo record originally it, it was and and free will was too and and free will um actually sounded kind of cool and i liked the vibe of it and it's really getting into sort of like trancey rolling percussion things and at one point i played with a drummer named adam who a guy from here um and a guy named eric bailey's on bass that was the first version of mini beast that um sort of sounded like we do now i guess um both those guys left and i maybe six or seven years ago i hooked up with a drummer from attleboro named keith um keith side Seidel. and when adam left uh i think i started you know, putting out feelers, I was not optimistic that I would find somebody near my age that wanted to play this stuff. I was like, I'll look, but if it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen. And within like two weeks, I ran into this guy and I said, okay, touchstones are like public image, Bella Cootie and the Stooges. And he said, please let me come down. I want to play this. <laughs> and, and, so the second we I started playing with Keith, I was like, this is what I'm looking for. Um, that's where it got more tribal. I think the songs got longer. Um, and I and that's when I started sort of like getting loops going and running around the club if I if I felt like it. And so that sort of we we uh changed bass players maybe four years ago and that's what the group has been since uh neil's la white plays bass keith seidel plays drums and i'm doing the other stuff and, and you, you guys are in Providence, based out of providence now right yes yeah how do you like it down there um i think you know my girlfriend and i were sort of we were sort of to the end of our Boston experience and we, and we wanted to get a house. As you know, it's kind of afford, uh, kind of hard to afford them up there. And it was a lot easier to afford them down here 12 years ago. So we got this amazing house. We practice in the basement, um, nice little yard. Basically, the kind of thing that we could never have in, Bo in Boston. And um, as much as I loved Boston, and I really did, I was there like 35 years of my life. So um, it's it's a place I, I still love a lot. Um, 
this was kind of inevitable. Uh, I, I think to, to sort of have a, a nice living space, um, this was important. Now, I don't love everything about Providence, but that's okay. <laughs> I, you know, there's enough that I love about it that I think we're both happy here. And, and uh, you know, it sort of became a living, a living spot almost by default, you know, because I didn't, neither of us wanted to move to the West Coast, move to, you know, Europe. Uh, we wanted to stick near where, where yeah. we were. So, uh, and ironically, my girlfriend and I both grew up on the East Coast. Uh, she grew up in Fall River. I grew up in Wareham. So it's it's almost like, you know, you get old and you start gravitating back to where you originated. <laughs> pretty close. Providence yeah. is pretty close to those places. It is. Okay, I got one more thing for you, and I'm going to let you go. You've been fantastic. Thank you. I know you're a big record collector because I can see all the records behind you, and I know you worked <laughs> at a record store. Now, I just came up with this off the top of my head, but can you tell me like what the last five, I'll only say five records that you listened to were? Um, oddly enough, there is a punk rock record in there, and it's like kind of a straight one. The the first Gen X album, I know. I oh, yeah. Um. I, uh, one of them was a, a soundtrack, uh, from the seventies. Um, uh, it's a French word. It's like the, not the, not the, the invasion. That's what it's called. <laughs> and it's, it's very bass and drummy. It, it kind of sounds a little like mini beast. It's very heavy on the bass and drums. Um, I think uh, at least four of those records would not have been rock because, <laughs> because especially when I'm, when I'm doing stuff at home, I tend not to play indie rock or, or punk stuff. But then again, you know, I'll get up in the morning and throw on black Sabbath and blue oyster cult too. So, you know, it, that's the, that's the, that's the great thing about having a wall full of records. Like you can walk over to it and pull something out and go, well, I haven't heard this for a couple of years. You know, <laughs> I should throw it on. So I, I would, I would actively say that to have all these records for me, it's almost like having this open-ended library of music. You know, you can, you can pull out any kind of sound as long as you bought it um and and listen to it and and i i kind of like that's the way i like looking at music now i don't i don't want to put limits on it if it if it gets me off i'll listen to it that's great man hey thanks a lot man for coming on the show i appreciate it peter thank you steve all right
about that huh okay that was academy fight song uh the first single from mission of burma which sounds as incredible now as it did when it came out over 40 years ago and no kid you heard it believe i'm sure you believe me you just heard it uh you know after i spoke with peter i was so excited that i started calling people to tell them about it definitely one of the incredible uh moments for me since i started this show back in january 2019 uh thank you peter prescott for coming on the show it was my pleasure entirely okay you can reach me anytime at twistedrico at gmail.com we have an instagram page facebook threads youtube where you can actually watch the zoom interview i just did with peter prescott there's also a tiktok page at twistedrico where you can watch clips from the show. All right. If you want to support this podcast, check out our Patreon site over at patreon.com forward slash Twisted Rico. It's been a great year. That's going to do it for 2023, folks. Thank you so much. Incredible year. Appreciate you listening. Till the next time we say goodbye, this is Blowing Smoke with Twisted Rico. I'm your host, Steve Ricardo. Keep the rock and roll alive.